From the home studios of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. This is the sixth episode of our book club series about my new book, Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. This week, we're talking about chapter five, The Curse of the Familiar. And the main idea of The Curse of the Familiar is that if you design new technologies, that are really new, are really innovative, create really different learning experiences for teachers and, and students, then many people will find them confusing. It's actually really hard to get sort of brand new pedagogies, brand new routines integrated into schools. So what a lot of technology companies do is they build technologies that just digitize existing practice. Oh, that's a digital worksheet. That's a flashcard app. And those things can actually get quite a bit of adoption. But if all you're doing is digitizing existing practice, then it's actually really hard to make meaningful change in student learning. I was very fortunate to, as has been the case for this whole book club, to have my great colleague Audrey Waters of Hack Education joining us to talk about this. And then we also had Dan Meyer, the chief academic officer of Desmos, uh, coming into the conversation. Desmos is an organization that makes an, a free online graphing calculator. Um, but to say it that way really masks uh, the really innovative work that Dan and his colleagues at Desmos are doing. Um, Desmos, along with the Scratch programming language, are some of the very few technologies, learning technologies that I feel like that are out there um, that are really successfully navigating their way through the curse of the familiar. So I was excited to hear from Dan about how he thought Desmos was doing that work. Anyway, let's go ahead and dive into the conversation. Well, it's three o'clock, uh, so why don't we go ahead and get started? I'm really glad to welcome Dan Meyer and Audrey Waters here for uh, episode six, discussing chapter five. So Dan, thanks so much for joining us. And can you, can you introduce yourself to us um, with an ed tech story? Can you introduce yourself to us with some encounter that you had um, as a learner, as a teacher earlier in, in your career with education technology to, um, to, to give us a sense of who you are and where you're coming from? Yeah, this will, um, you know, this will, this will date me, but also set kind of the, the groundwork for where I'm at in ed tech. First of all, uh, thanks for having me on, um, Justin and Audrey, a couple of my favorite thinkers and talkers about all of this. It's just an honor to be here. Um, I'm honored to see a couple of my, my Desmos colleagues online. I'm here, you know, representing much more work than just my own, um, although all, all errors and omissions are mine. So um, the biggest deal for me in ed tech was when I got a digital projector in a classroom. I won in a grant actually applied for it. It was not standard equipment. Um, so that's my era of teaching. And um, what was just what, fantastic what about uh, 2006, I got the, I got the device, I think. Yeah. And I really want, I did not want to be a math teacher. I wanted to be a movie director and was kind of oblivious to like how difficult that transition would be career-wise. Um, but I really had a, a facility and an interest in uh, images and visuals and, and found that in, in math class even, they were useful to stimulate student thought and interest. And so I, all of a sudden I was no longer printing out full colored transparencies, but I was like creating uh, like, like movies of uh, math as I saw it in the world and bring that in not to like just kind of show and tell the math, um, but to have students engage in the mathematical analysis with me. Like, um, you know, here's me at a, at a, at a shopping market 
you know, which line should I choose and just kind of bringing students into the scene. Uh, and that was just, that was just so huge for me. Um, continuing a little bit forward to where we met, I was in, I went to Stanford to study math education uh, in grad school. That was around 2010 and y'all know what happened in 2010, right? Everyone, everyone kind of knows like that era that, that, that started there um, with, with MOOCs uh, oriented, epicentered at, um, in the Silicon Valley particularly Coursera. And I was there with the math education department. We were watching the engineers and computer science folks, just like it was just blowing up without any of our input. Like if we had organized the biggest campaign to like say, hey, like this kind of pedagogy, we've seen this for decades in online instruction. Um, this is just bigger, but it's definitely not better. And it's not gonna work in lots of ways. If we'd organized the most massive concentrated campaign, it would not have stopped the, the venture capital powered rocket ship that was taking off right around us right there. And we were all kinds of sour about it, um, or at least I was kind of a, annoyed at how popular these folks over here who had not paid their dues in the classroom or these k-12 classes and um that, that was that was a moment for me where, where i just i saw that and um you know other other kinds of innovations khan academy came up around then also um, we got a khan academy uh, software developer on the call so i'll um uh, speak gently here about khan academy but it, it represented a way of, of learning that was not one that i had any use for in my class um this like watch some watch a knowledgeable adult tell you what you should know, and then repeat that back through multiple choice and numerical response items. Um, just it didn't represent any kind of experience I was having with students that was I was so enthralled with. Um, so that was like my development. Um, and then subsequent to that, I met um, through Audrey, thanks Audrey, um, Eli Lubaroff, the CEO at Desmos, who at that time they'd created a very fantastic and powerful um, graphing calculator, which was web-based. Um, it was free for end users, funded by, as, as Justin mentioned in the book, funded by um, partnerships with assessment consortia and companies. And that early success there, we kind of parlayed that into funding for a project around uh, more integrated experiences in math classes. Like we saw um, teachers using our calculator to have students solve problems that we didn't like all that much. Like it was kind of like, oh, okay, that's a nice use for this, but we wanted to have a, a more integrated impact into um, using ed tech into a student's math experience. And that's led us to create um, a core mathematical curriculum. That's a, that's a kind of blow by blow there, uh, moment by, by moment. Um, I think I should, somewhere in there, me and Justin, like we led a contest to kind of critique in video form, Khan Academy videos, that was a blast. Um, and that's where kind of our partnership really reached some kind of zenith or a local maximum. I'm not sure if we're, we're done blossom. yet. That's where it blossomed, but the, yeah, blossomed, the fruits and pollen have spread so far, <laughs> so far beyond. Um, no, that's great, Dan. Will you say just a little bit more, because I think it's important, too, that you were a classroom teacher of math for a number of years in there, too. I guess you said that with your, um, but what 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 grades and what subjects did you teach? Yeah, that number was uh, six, six years. Um, so th that six years was, um, I don't think qualifies me in a lot of ways as like a real teacher. I feel like less and less connected to my identity as a teacher over time, but it was enough to give me certain very valuable experiences in the world of ed tech. Um, and I taught high school mathematics, um, public schools, um, mostly ninth grade, definitely as is the custom for lots of new teachers, novice teachers, uh, that I received the students who were neediest and need, needed the best kinds of instruction, which is um, a sad state of affairs. But um, I would just say about that, that I, I really love mathematics, saw a lot of personal value in my own life, like just personal experience. Um, and it really bothered me in ways I am glad I couldn't shake that students did not like what I liked. Like I'm the sort of person who recommends you a movie or a TV show. And if you don't like it, that I wanna kind of get the heart of that, figure out what, where, where we're missing each other. Um, I felt the same way about students in math class. And that was that dissonance, like, wait, you don't 
love this stuff, even a fraction of my love for it, just provided you know, it was cold fusion for my creative efforts. It was like, you know, a uh, perpetual motion machine. It was rocket fuel for all, all my work subsequent. That's great. So we brought Dan here today to talk with us about the curse of the familiar. So in the second half of failure to disrupt, um, I argue that there are four as yet intractable dilemmas. If you want to understand sort of why education technology has not taken off in the way that many people often hope, if you want to understand what the sort of persistent barriers to success and impact and scale and other kinds of things you might care about, um, then, you know, I argue that there's four things you got to look at, which we're going to tackle over the course of the next few weeks. The curse of the familiar, the EdTech Matthew effect, the trap of routine assessment, um, and the toxic power of data and experiment. Um, and Audrey and Dan, Audrey, maybe we can start with you just to give us all some shared grounding. And in case there are folks who joined us that didn't have a chance to um, to, <laughs> to read the chapter, um, could, you, could you give us your sort of take on what the curse of the familiar is and um, what seems to make sense to you about it and what's, what's missing? I think that, um... I'll let, I'll let Dan speak to the, to the parts about Desmos, but one of the um, things that you talked about here that uh, I thought was um, how I often think about this as well is the, the popularity, the widespread popularity of Quizlet. Um, almost everyone I talk to who's not in education or ed tech knows Quizlet, uses Quizlet. Um, it's incredibly popular and it's, it's a digital flashcard app, right? So, um, it's a company that's raised a substantial amount of money, um, probably downloaded on, <laughs> it's probably one of the most popular ed tech apps, um, but is it transformative, right? Or I, mean, I think, as you say, you might be able to do things with a digital flashcard app that paper is more challenging to do with. Uh, so there's perhaps there's more efficiency there, but is a digital flashcard app going to be um, is it going to be transformative or really is it, is it even going to, you know, sort of, to use a cliche, move the needle in a, in a substantive, in a substantive way. And sometimes, how I, sometimes my joke is something like if you gathered a bunch of educational experts from around the world and put them in a room together, like would anyone raise their hand and say, we have a real dearth of flashcards in our nation's school systems. And until we can address that dearth of flashcards, we're just never going to be able to move forward. Like flashcards is the things that we're really missing in our schools. But, but that's, but that's, I think the, the curse of the familiar though, is that, you know, I think that that's, that's part of the thing is that when we, many of us, when we think about how do we study um, how do we, um, how are we going to best sort of organize our notes for our classes or material that we have to learn? Um, because of our own even analog experiences, right? We, we think, ah, I should get some flashcards. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then by contrast, when we try to do weird things, we try to do things that look really different if we tried to um, you know, make you memorize facts in some kind of new way that you have never seen before, which might even be better, um, then those things often end up being confusing to people. That when we develop new technologies, um, you know, we talked, we alluded to this and talked about it a little bit. We talked with Mitch Resnick and Natalie Rusk about Scratch. Um, there's a lot that's amazing about Scratch, but I do think there are a lot of people that encounter that interface initially and they go, 
I don't know what this thing is. Like, this isn't like, where's is, where is the puzzle? I'm supposed to have a computer programming puzzle. Um, or I'm supposed to have like a list of things that I copy into, a, you know, a, a computer programming environment. And that's how I learned to computer program. I don't, I don't know about all this, you know, cats and sprites and dragging things around and stuff like that. Um, and there's a lot of people, you know, there, I think there are very few people who hit the Quizlet website um, and go, I don't know what this thing is. They, oh yeah, no, that's the front of the flashcard. That's where the question goes. That's the back of the class. That's where the answer goes and off we run. Um, whereas I think, you know, we build things that are really new and really different. Some of the games that we talked about um, with uh, Scott Osterweil and Constance Steinkohler last week, you know, a teacher might play the logical journey of the Zubinis and then say, well, this is really cool, but I have no idea exactly what's teaching kids or how it would fit into my, uh, um, um, experience. Um, F. Noss joins it. He was in an AP prep class this weekend where the instructor used a Desmos activity that consisted entirely of scanned worksheets and just used Desmos to collect the answers. Um, so even as people are trying to do things that might be really different, um, we also take tools and we figure out the sort of most familiar ways to use them. Another way I say this sometimes, I think it's in the book, um, is that, you know, in, in 30 years of education technology history, uh, the a per, a finding that we find over and over again is that when teachers have access to new technologies, they use it to extend existing practices. There are, very, there are very few teachers who will tell you a story like Dan told you 10 minutes ago of, I got a projector and the projector allowed me to, to do many different kinds of things in my teaching, especially initially. It's much more common to say, um, I got a projector and now I put my notes up on the projector that I used to put on my overhead acetate. I don't know, how does this ring for you, Dan? Um, does, this, does this seem like a framework for thinking about this problem that resonates or are there parts of it that, that are, that's, that's missing or, or could be more complex or nuanced or? Yeah, this is a, a I think I had, the, I had the most challenges with some of your analysis of, of well, we'll get to, get to some of my, my questions about your analysis. I thought that the part that was just really rang true for me was that ed tech is a, a, a place where you are um, either going to combat or co-opt uh, the grammar of schooling, as it's called. Like, that's either going to work against you or in your favor. And part of the advantage of, uh, for us, of hiring a team of teachers, myself included, former teachers, a very large team relative to the size of the whole company, um, especially compared to other ed tech companies. We have like, um, I don't know, 15 former teachers. We have former teachers on the engineering team. Is that we're a group that really understands the grammar of schooling. And what that means for us is that we are um, able to, um, we, we're making decisions about what about that grammar do we want to change, subvert, and what parts do we not care about, and which parts will we actually like preserve and co-opt. Um, that's been, th those three areas are just so hard to understand if you don't have time, if you haven't spent 180 days of a year, time six periods, understanding like what the bell is telling you to do every every hour and what what kind of the logic of what students expect is. Um, so yeah, so for, from our perspective, for us, we, we are not trying to subvert the school day. We're not trying to get learning outside of the four walls of a classroom. We're not trying to, uh, you know, upend schooling and turn everyone into homeschoolers. Um, so like those are, I'm not judging those necessarily, but I'm just saying we know what we're not trying to do. Um, and we are, we are actually really eager to use the four walls. We understand that there are things that are possible when a, a bunch of people are together in a room um, that are impossible during asynchronous experiences. There's this collect, Durkheim's collective effervescence. It's why we go to, used to go to movie theaters or why like sports are interesting to watch in person versus on TV. It's that bubbly champagne-like feeling when you're all together. 
So we know what we're trying to change and not trying to change. And I'll just tell you what we want to change is the following. We want to change a student's relationship to mathematics and a teacher's relationship to students. And we're going to do that through the oldest cliche, the oldest device in the book, a math curriculum. Like we, we believe in a coherent um, approach to student experiences where teachers aren't trying to cobble it together from scratch every day. And we'll use that to, to change what we want, want to change. So here, I mean, here's an interesting puzzle of what you've said, Dan, which is, you know, and the one that you described sort of the core of your company is we want to change a student's relationship to math and a teacher's relationship to students. Um, and step one of Desmos in that process was to build a graphing, an online graphing calculator. Um, you know, that, that, I mean, that might strike some people as not the most intuitive way um, to go to changing relationships um, is to build an online graphing calculator. How, how, does, how, do, how do you carry us across that uh, conceptual bridge? Yeah, I think that that, that was part of why Desmos, the co-founders, uh, Eli Lubroff and Eric Berger, decided to hire on people who under, bring on collaborators who understood the world of education a little bit better. Like that group, under, they, they understood technology and, um, and, and kind of the way devices were, like those were used in classes, but th there was a certain limit that they hit in terms of like, what is our understanding of the grammar of schooling? We know that these devices get lots of uses on, use on tests and in classes. Can we build a better one, a cheaper one, one that's more dynamic and enables more exploration? But in terms of what, how are those explorations structured in a school day, in a school year, um, that was something that, that they, we, all of us needed to bring on lots of different collaborators. So I have, uh, I have two thoughts in the book about how to move past the curse of the familiar. But before we move forward, Dan, you said that you had some questions. Were some, were some things around the framing of that that you wanted to raise as potential issues that were worth discussing more? Well, you made a lot out of community as being part of the vehicle of like successful um, education technology. And you, you referenced a number of moments of like your and my even shared history on, in online spaces and how we've experienced community there. I think community has enormous value, of course, um, for lots of things. But I just couldn't quite figure out like um, Khan Academy has been, by some measures, very successful, certainly in terms of, um, you know, time magazine covers. They are ahead of Desmos for now. Um, Coursera, uh, in terms of venture capital, very successful. Um, and none of which, none of those, neither of those, I would say, have a community attached to them. Certainly not in math educator circles. Um, and so I, I don't know, like I, I, I struggled to connect the success of, an edu of education technology to community the way you did. And I was hoping you would, you would speak to those examples in particular or, or help me kind of flesh out what you were saying. Yeah, I, I think... What I was saying is that uh, a space that I'm interested in are how do you get how do you get technologies that are widely adopted um, that also help people meet the kinds of goals you described before, which is changing the relationship between students and math, changing the relationship between teachers and students. Um, how do you how do you get widely adopted technologies that also ask people to do pedagogically different kinds of things? Um, so what you know the 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 you know as we were talking about before Audrey's example of Quizlet um, the best way to get a technology widely adopted is to not ask people to do teaching and learning differently um, to ask them to do the same kinds of things that they were doing before to have a high degree of familiarity um, 
And if that's your approach, if you don't need, if you don't need students and teachers to learn any kinds of new routines or any kinds of new patterns, um, then really you just have to worry about scaling as widely as possible. Um, and uh, um, you can actually think about scale sort of solely as a distribution problem. Like how many people know about Khan Academy or Coursera? How many people log in? Um, how many people operate it in a way, you know, trusting that to participate in Khan Academy, you don't have to sort of rethink teaching and learning. I mean, one of the things I bring up in the beginning of the book is Saul Khan had this 2019 interview with District Administrator Magazine, um, where he says, you know, for a while I talked about kind of rearranging, you know, using technology to rearrange schools, to be a lever to project-based learning. But what we're seeing now is that basically um, uh, people should teach normally four days a week and then use Khan Academy for practice problems one day a week. Um, and that's sort of doable and achievable. Um, so that I think, I don't think it requires community or you know, even a great deal of, of uh, pedagogical creativity to implement those kinds of models. Um, it, it mostly requires dissemination. Like if we get enough computers in schools and we make you know, um, the, the, the web service good enough, then, then that's pretty easy. But what happens if you, you know, for, for someone to use the tools that you just showed us, um, where you ask people to play around with a mathematical model with really abstract representations and then to like slowly make that more concrete by adding more um, mathematical notation to it and things like that. You kind of have to, you have to think a little bit differently about teaching and learning. You can't think about math teaching and learning as, well, I'm going to lecture to you for a bit about how to do a problem and then you're going to practice using that on a different set of numbers. Um, to you can't, I don't, I don't think Desmos will be able to scale those ideas just by getting people to download Desmos. Um, if, if we want those kinds of ideas about teaching and learning to change, then you have to have a community of educators, um, mathematics educators, who are willing to say, not only, hey, here, come see Desmos, but like, come see Desmos and let me show you some lesson plans that might look different from what you're doing before. And here's where you're going to get stuck on those lesson plans. And here's where it's going to be frustrating. And here's where you might need more time. And here's where, where you might need to change the schedule. Here's where you're going to need to change the routine. Um, and here's how I can convince you person to person that these different kinds of ideas are going to be better. Um, you know, so I guess I, you know, I have this theory that um, the, 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 the most interesting pedagogical ideas that you all as software developers have tried to bake into Desmos are not gonna be transmitted by the software itself. Um, there's gonna have to be um, the building of a community of educators that sort of math teacher to math teacher, department head to department head um, share these ideas, which is, you know, and the reason why you and I know each other is because we encounter each other um, doing this kind of work where you've given talks in all 50 states. Um, you have this whole cohort of Desmos um, teacher educators, you know, you like, like built, you know, the way, the, the only, the only, one of the only ways I see through the curse of the familiar is this kind of community building. You know, we, we had uh, Natalie Rusk and Mitch Resnick on recently, and I see Scratch doing the same kind of thing. Like you can, you can get schools to download Scratch and then they take it and they do exactly what Natalie and Mitch don't want people to do with it, um, which is just to like, you know, give people recipes for problem, you know, for programs they're supposed to make. And it's only when you have, you know, teachers engaged with these communities of folks um, that you can have something that both looks like, you know, change that's happening in thousands of schools or tens of thousands of schools, um, but also sort of a real meaningful shift in practice.
Audrey, that's the any, argument any, anyway. Yeah. Can you add any more color to that, Audrey? What's your take here? Um, you know, I, I was thinking a couple of different things while you were talking. Um, and one of the... That's why I ran on so long. I needed to give you some time to... <laughs> Well, one of one of the things that also I think that you don't really talk about here, Justin, when the curse of the familiar is I think the the power of an influence of investors who also have their ideas of the ways in which um, ways in which ed tech should look, but also the metrics that matter to them. Um, you know, and I think I think that the one of the things I mean, there's there are many things that I love about about Desmos, um, but I think one of the one of the things that I adore is, um, well, it's Eli, the CEO, but is the way in which I think that a lot of the decisions that Eli makes are not the decisions that look good for the investors, right? Because I think there are ways in which, um, you know, typically, for example, the more clicks you have on things that you can sort of show your investors these charts that say, you know, last month uh, people clicked 800 times and this month we got them clicking 1600 times, therefore, it's improved. And I think that, you know, I think that the curse of the familiar really does also shape the way in, lo in which lots of these other, um, other softwares, other educational software gets designed and it gets designed to meet the, the familiar uh, that investors expect as well. And I think that that's a really, it's a really powerful, it's a really powerful force um, on the ground within education companies. That reminds me of uh, Justin's line in the chapter. I think it was something like uh, ed tech needs patient optimists. And I think that like patient optimist describes very few venture capitalists, you know, in our world uh, who are more often like, you know, anticipating, you know, 10 failures for every one success and are looking at a three or maybe five year timeline. And uh, we have uh, largely through Eli's guidance and uh, others at the company have been very uh, chosen some very fantastic partners here and there, especially those those recently at, at Reach Capital. Um, yeah, I don't know, uh, Justin. I'm still I'm still struggling a little bit here. I think um, I think that the a community that people most experience in teaching is not online. Like most teachers are not the very online sorts, you know, yep. who are here in the chat right now. I was like, oh, we should survey. The teachers in the chat right now, and I was like, "Oh no, these people aren't normal. These are these are uh, these are my kind of weirdo." Um, but most teachers aren't online, and most teachers, their community is local. It's in their department, um, if that. And um, so, I would say, I would, I would. We have a community of Desmos fellows, invitation only about forty per year, and I'll just say, we do not invite them to disseminate. Like they are not our disseminators. They wind up doing a lot of that just because they we all get along really well. Um, but they are there to help us. Um, test and validate and kind of purify our notions of what education is, especially for um, populations of students that like we, we, I as a white male educator don't have experience with, or I, I don't understand their experience of math education. Um, I, I think that personally what, what we need is for students, what they call low floor, high ceiling math tasks, where like any student can kind of enter in and write their story about the two turtles. And then the ceiling goes higher and higher and you can write long stories. You, then you go to the equations. And what, what's so missing from ambitious math ed tech or ed tech at, uh, in general, I, that's the distinction I, was, I see you making between like ones that fundamentally try to change something um, is that there aren't like low floor, high ceiling teacher tasks. Like Scratch just asks you to kind of, as far as I understand it, like really just reimagine math instruction, CS instruction, what CS is, what, a, what, an, ID, what an IDE looks like. 
all of that. And there's just like not a great way to jump into that at a low floor. Um, and when you talk about like narrow foyers, that to me feels like trying to create that low floor. Um, and so ideally for us at Desmos, I would trade so much of our dissemination in exchange for an imagination for experiences that were alluring to teachers of all sorts that got them in the door and they just felt that onrush of community with their and connection to their students. And like, oh, this is like, I'm not, my students don't hate math and don't hate me today. Like, this is awesome. And, and then we can scale that up. And like, as they're ready for it, we have, you know, our snapshots tool and our feedback tool. And um, that's what I'm looking, I need a better imagination for in my work. How, um, I mean, I think the thing that you're describing there is, is something that I tried to describe in the book is sort of the second pathway through the curse of the familiar, which is, can you give people something that's familiar enough? Or I use the term familiar, you use the term low floor, and they might not be exactly the same thing, um, but they might have some overlap that you can sort of walk into this task and be like, yeah, I can do this. Um, this, is, this is not so cockamamie and so different that I'm just completely lost and gonna turn this down. Um, but it's, but you know, it's, it's, it's helping me meet some of the math goals that, you know, have already have historically been assigned to me by my district, by my state, those kinds of things. Um, but it's also helping me do that plus other things. I mean, how much do you feel like Desmos is trying to, you know, meet teachers where they're at in terms of um, the, the, the goals that are already embedded in their curriculum, the, um, the, the patterns of the grammar of schooling they're used to seeing, and then kind of take them um, and say, actually, we could do some of those things, but we'll probably have to give up some of those things so that we can do these other much cooler kinds of things. I mean, does that resonate with you as a set of goals that you have or? Yeah, I mean, you open up our curriculum, it's digital, so that's different and new, and we're, we're ready to accept that cost. Um, but it has like a chapter listing, it has a lesson listing within chapters, like there are elements of it that feel very familiar, it's, it's aligned to standards, you know, like we have either accepted those costs reluctantly, or in some cases, eagerly, like we're happy to be called a curriculum, we think that those are valuable and oftentimes the, the drivers of teacher growth is when the PD is attached to a curriculum. So we're happy about that. Um, and the difference is, is that instead of saying like, turn to page 233, number 2021, um, you know, you press, press the assign lesson button and then this facilitation interface opens up and that's where we're like, okay, now we need to start stretching you a little bit. But up until that point, we're hoping this feels, to use your word, very familiar. Um, Audrey, we've talked about this before about, um, trying, you know, the, cha the chapter has examples, and Dan, we can ask you this too. The chapter has examples of Desmos and Scratch as these sort of two pieces of education technology that seem to be, you know, have some success in reaching a certain amount of scale in schools, um, engaging public education in interesting ways, while also trying to change what teaching and learning looks like. Um, whether or not Dan agrees with me, I sort of say that, you know, they do this through kind of building and spreading community um, and then through creating materials that start you somewhere familiar and get you somewhere else. Um, can, can you think of other, what, what, like what else, could have been, what else could have been the examples in this chapter? What else should have been on our list? This is like the trick question. <laughs> I get this, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I, um, Desmos, is, Desmos is always my go-to example of, of um, good, the good ed tech, the ed tech I like. Um, I think it's, I mean, I think that it's, it really is indicative though of how 
how much uh, um, how much ed tech, despite all of the talk of disruption, is really um, replicating um, not just replicating systems, um, but replicating I think some pretty um, some pretty awful practices. I think that lately. Um, I'm sure that people have seen like the sort of explosion of the um, surveillance software used to monitor um, monitor people, um, monitor students who, um, in case they're cheating. And uh, I just think that you know what we what we see more often are things are, are that are, there are software that just sort of are the worst of are the worst of it. Um, Susan's proposing GeoGebra and IXL as other options. Um, I actually don't know IXL that well, although I think of it as kind of a practice problem platform. Um, GeoGebra is something that I think of as kind of a, a precursor of, uh, um, of Desmos in certain kinds of ways. Um, I can't even think of another, you know, I mean, part my sense, and Dan can correct this, is that part of what insulates Desmos from investor pressure is probably a certain amount of, um, you know, deeply held beliefs from um, the founders and so forth. But it also struck me that like part of what insulates them is that they found this funding model that doesn't require, um, you know, individual consumer purchases um, that you, that you like, I assume that I don't know anything about Desmos finances, except I have this sense that you get like these lump sum payments um, from publishers and from testing consortium um, that pay a, a reasonable portion of those bills. Um, and uh, um, what that allows is sort of a longer runway, you know, you're, 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 not necessarily as judged on like how many user acquisitions do we get in the fourth quarter of 2020 um, in the same way that many other education technologies does. I mean, it seems like that kind of relationship is not that different from the relationships that like, you know, the lifelong kindergarten lab has with the National Science Foundation or other kinds of things like that, that you have these sort of like, not perfect, but like semi-reliable chunks of institutional funding um, that give you some freedom to maneuver. I can't even think of other companies that have sort of similar, you know, I, I can think of a lot of university-based things that have similar funding structures. I can't think of a lot of other um, sort of for-profit for technology companies that have a source of funding that ends up, that ends up working to, to insulate them against certain kinds of, you know, uh, financial pressures related to like getting individual consumers to participate. Yeah, I'll just offer two follow-up comments to that. One is, yes, um, Desmos has been, uh, before I arrived, Desmos was uh, enormously conservative and shrewd uh, about how it funded itself um, in the model, exactly as you described, by getting some like relatively chunky, lumpy, large, large payments from publishers and um, assessment consortia. And that wound up, like my team at Desmos, that gave us, like uh, on the teaching team Desmos, like five years to just play around with different kind of models for ed tech and to pilot and to think and to throw away. It was just ridiculous, like the, how spoiled the teaching team was at Desmos is. Um, and only now that we're starting to sell into districts um, with kind of this like smaller, but much more diffuse and uh, regular sales, are we like starting to see that, that my team is uh, gonna, gonna start earning its keep basically here at Desmos. Um, so there's that. And I would also just say, yeah, like we, um, 
like uh, the founders, the like, and I include myself as one of the more influential early employees there, like have a, a fair, like are, are driven by concerns beyond like flipping a startup to, you know, to Google or Amazon or someone and getting bought out. Um, like we have certain ethical positions that are articulated and rearticulated um, to everyone in the company. And eventually, most recently, like we've created a, a committee, the equity steering committee, which um, has more codified those beliefs about what learning is and the context in which students learn to the degree that they are you know, empowered to say, no, we're not pursuing that project. Um, this partnership is not gonna be um, productive for students or, or you know, just for students. Um, we're trying to like formalize as our company grows beyond like out beyond the kind of the nucleus of these, these early people who had strong ideas so that it can continue as a 50, 100, 200 you know, and beyond kind of company um, and still preserve those ethical considerations, which have, yeah, have insulated us from people who wanna partner with us, who wanna fund us and so on. Dan, can you talk a little bit about the kinds of things, um, and you can be, use a real example or it could be hypothetical, that the kinds of things that um, features or things that you would say no to, right? What, are, what is something that, like, I even say, like, many, because it's of the curse of the familiar, teachers want, yeah. but you're yes. like, nah, we ain't going to yeah. do that. Yeah, uh, there's there's a current very big one in the era of, you know, disaster, pandemic teaching, and um Basically, we have we have our curriculum that we build using tools that we make available to teachers to use themselves. Like there are very few of our tool set that's you know restricted to our employees, and so teachers can create these activities. And one of the commenters in the chat here said, "Yeah, I saw like someone use um, Desmos to display an image of a page and then collect you know student responses digitally, which you know isn't nothing, but it's, it, I think we agree it's not transformative." So anyway, we have those tools, and we have seen in the era of virtual teaching um, just an explosion, as so many people have, you know, so many edtech companies have in the usage of those tools. And with that comes an influx of teachers who are, you know, not part of the crowd that we have reached out to and tried to, you know, seduce into our orbit. They're like, there's people who are desperate, you know, and they, they're importing lots of ideas about teaching that haven't gone through our, you know, hype cycle or whatever. So the biggest feature request we have received over the last, you know, nine months, um, six months, six, nine months is for auto grading, for more auto grading. Our software by design, we have not exposed to students whether they are right or wrong. Uh, 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 in the same way that say Khan Academy says like, try again. Um, and that's been intentional because for our, our activities, if we tell a student you're right, then thinking stops. If we tell them they're wrong, Thinking may continue, but of a certain character, where they're like, like I did, just try different numbers and press submit until I get the get the you know the hooray. Um, so we display this to teachers the correctness or incorrectness of their students on some items, um, and that lets teachers create conversations that connect students and develop thinking. The more coy a teacher can play um, and not revealing the correct answer, the more thinking and justification and authority is transferred to students. Anyway, people want to display a green check or a red X or a thumbs up image or a thumbs down image to their students when um, their answers are right or wrong. And we've heard that and we, we are so plugged into the teaching community um, you know, through, through Twitter and other, other means. And we are responsive and we, when they hurt, we hurt. Like we were former teachers and we want to do right by them. And um, there's been like even some like inter-company debate, uh, inter-company debate about whether we should create the means through which teachers can display that auto feedback. And um, that's an example where when you know what you're about, then you have a better platform on which to make those decisions. And so we've decided not to do that, but instead to invest ourselves in creating other kinds of technology 
that gets at that, that, that um, responds to that same need, but also preserves the student's creativity and connection to other students. An example of which might be, instead of student does this problem and we say right or wrong, um, we let you see, peek in on another student's screen and respond to that student to a prompt. Like, do you have a question for the student? What do you like about the student's work? And then jump back to your own. Um, but that's just like how, that's how um, an ethic is manifest through technology. I, that's such a great question, Audrey, of what is the thing that you're not willing to build? Because I, I, it it's a question we could have asked Natalie and Mitch too. And I think they would have had similar kinds of answers of, you know, folks are often trying to get blank, but we just, you know, and I think it would have been about assessment too, very likely. Good. Well, we're coming to our um, 350 uh, time here, which we, we try to end 10 minutes early in, in respect to the, the very few MIT students that we have joining us every week. Um, I don't know if there are any other questions that I missed from the chat that we should try to get as we're um, winding down here. I got, I got one on uh, assessment there. Um, uh, Yuliana asks us, uh, speaking about technology and pedagogy, do you support the opinion that instructors who fail to teach well remotely are not well qualified in pedagogy, such as those colleagues who lecture in Zoom to the black squares as students have their cameras and mics off, having no interactive activities and any students feedback? Um, I don't know, Audrey or Dan, if you have any thoughts on this, but my, my experience is that there's some like really outstanding teachers who are really struggling to teach well right now. Um, um, and in fact, uh, some of the very best sort of pedagogies that out there are really hard to replicate online. We, we, did, some we did some research over the summer um, where we interviewed 40 teachers. One of the teachers we interviewed um, is sort of known as like the singing math teacher. Um, she's an elementary school teacher, which has this great repertoire of sort of call and response songs for teaching math. Um, and she was just brokenhearted because they all kind of fall flat on Zoom. Um, you know, it, it, turns, it turns out that like, you know, it's kind of hard to, to, to discern all of the interactions that work on Zoom and don't work on Zoom, but call and response is definitely one of them that doesn't work. Um, even you know, though at, the, at the beginning, Dan talked about the, the, the effervescence of the classroom. And I think it's about the teaching, but it is also just that being, a, being with a group of people. And I think it, for me, I'm always, it always reminds me of sort of the danger of personalized learning in which everyone is just interacting with their, you know, <laughs> with their computer, with their Dreambox software and not engaged in the other part of community, which is the students, the students as, a, as an intellectual community working and interacting with each other. And I feel like that's, that's the, that is so difficult to, to recreate um, even with, you know, even with video conferencing, um, it's just, it's just not the same to have these little squares. And so, if, you know, th there's a lot to be said about teaching, but I think there's just a lot to be said too about just the reciprocity, the intellectual reciprocity that students have in a classroom. That's just, it, we just, it's just hard to do. Yeah, if, I, if you show me a teacher who is doing well in this current model of instruction, I'm gonna wanna like get that person, you know, tested for performance enhancing drugs. Like they, I don't know how anyone's doing anything effectively right now. And so I'm not inclined to judge anybody who's struggling. Um, yeah, it's just a tough time. It is a tough time, but I know that there are a lot of folks who are out there. I mean, we, we run, a, as you've joined us, we have a little cohort of uh, Boston Public Schools math teachers that we're supporting. Um, and I feel like one of the, um, 
you know, one, one of the very few, there are not many silver linings of the pandemic is that there are going to be some teachers who tried some things um, during the pandemic that worked a little bit better for them. And they're going to be able to bring back into their classrooms, um, you know, when we hopefully get to safer and happier times. Well, I know that collective effervescence is almost impossible to generate on a video conference call, but I think we did the very best we could to generate a, a simulacra of collective effervescence um, during this call. So Dan uh, Myers uh, from Desmos, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really great to have you. Thank you, folks. It's a treat. Thank Take care. You, Audrey, once again, for uh, co-hosting this uh, with me. Thank you. So we will be back next week discussing the EdTech Matthew effect with Antero Garcia, terrific teacher from uh, Stanford University, formerly taught in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Um, and uh, more great conversations to follow. I think in the next week or so, we're gonna have the first podcast release of the book club. So if any of you missed some of the earlier episodes, they're, in, they're gonna start coming out in processed form uh, now. Um, anyway, thanks everyone for a great discussion um, and we'll see you all uh, around this time next week. Since this episode recorded, I've been thinking about Dan's comment about uh, any teacher doing well now getting tested for performance enhancing drugs. Um, and I think there's definitely some truth to that. It is a really hard time right now for teachers to be able to figure out how to build online schools, you know, from, from nothing without the kind of institutional support that we wish they might have. But at the same time, um, I think it is really exciting over the last few months, you know, one of the most hopeful things to observe during the pandemic is to see the way that teachers and students are taking the tools they have available, developing new routines and making things work a little better. Um, some folks listening to this may have read uh, some of the stories in the newspaper about teachers who have started putting stickers on their faces. So one of the problems with Zoom school is that a lot of students don't participate. Um, and we don't have the same ways of coaxing their participation online as we do in person. Um, so some enterprising teachers said, hey, I got I got a roll of stickers here. And every time a new person in the conversation participates, I'm going to take a sticker and put it on my face. And so then we saw these funny pictures on Twitter of teachers with stickers covered all over their faces. What they'd done is they'd found some, you know, low stakes, uh, relatively low cost, uh, you know, a few stickers and a tiny amount of embarrassment um, and loss of dignity to be able to have more students participating in their conversation. And, and new routines like that are being developed every day across America's schools. There, as far as I can tell, there's not a school or district in the country that's had a real breakthrough in online learning. There's no place I could point you to and say, oh, you gotta go to X school district because they really figured it out. Instead, what's happening is day after day, we see these new routines, you know, a thousand rough edges getting sanded down by teachers. Um, this one about putting stickers on your face happened to get some media attention because it was pretty funny. But, but teachers and students and families are figuring out all kinds of little things like that to eke out a little bit more learning uh, today than they did the day before. And to me, that's one of the most hopeful things to observe and really kind of highlights one of the key themes of failure to disrupt, which is that we don't get better through disruption. We don't get better through breakthroughs. We get better through tinkering. We get better through incrementally shoulder to the wheel improving the work of teaching and learning with technology, without technology every day in our schools.
And I should say, dear listeners, that we're always looking for more stories and more examples of uh, these kinds of innovations. So if you've got things out there, tweet it to us. You can tweet me at at BJFR, or you can uh, send it to at Teach Lab Podcast. Um, let us know what kinds of things you're doing in your classrooms to innovate, to try new things, to eke a little bit more learning uh, today out of what you had yesterday. I'm Justin Reich. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab. If you'd like to learn more about what we discussed in today's episode, you can check out our show notes. Be sure to subscribe to Teach Lab to get future episodes. And if you like our podcast, you can leave us a review. You can check out my new book, Failure to Disrupt, Why a Technology Loan Can't Transform Education, available from booksellers everywhere. You can read reviews of the book, check out related media, and sign up for online events at failuretodisrupt.com. That's failuretodisrupt.com. Also this month, you can join myself and Vanderbilt professor Rich Milner in a free self-paced online course for educators, Becoming a More Equitable Educator, Mindsets and Practices. Through inquiry and practice, you'll cultivate a better understanding of yourself and your students. You'll gain new resources to help all students thrive and develop an action plan to work in your community to advance the lifelong work of equitable anti-racist teaching. You can find the link to this edX course in our show notes where you can enroll now. The course will run until August 26, 2021, and you can join on your own or with colleagues anytime and complete the course uh, at your own pace for free. This episode of Teach Lab was produced by Amy Corrigan and Garrett Beasley, recorded and sound mixed by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe until next time. <laughs>